Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're actually going to pick up where we left off last night. And I appreciate worship time through song. I, I'm always hesitant to say, to call that worship. It's exclusively because this is worship too. You know, hearing the word, responding to the word, it's a worship service. So, you know, to designate worship through song, I, I appreciated that. That was really good, man. I love listening to those guys. Um, I so I didn't know Jason was going to dress formal this morning. He's wearing his Canadian tuxedo. I <laughs> I got this Wrangler denim shirt that I wear sometimes, and and this boy that goes to church with us. He's like, "Oh, it's dress up Sunday. You got your tux on." <laughs> and uh, so yeah, but anyway, I, I I love working with these guys. It's been fun these last two years doing this and. And I love his church, but uh, and I love uh, John, Pastor Jonathan and his family. I, um, Jonathan's a, you know he's a faithful preacher, and last night we talked about um, exposition and exhortation, both being parts of how you handle the Word of God, and um, and he's faithful with that. And so when we were earlier this year, we were going through the Book of Daniel at the church where I'm a pastor. I got when people ask me what I do, I don't even know how to explain it. So. So me and my wife started Snowbird Outfitters with her parents. And her parent, her dad had been the youth pastor at First Baptist Woodstock and worked with Johnny. And then, so, but we, and she and I were working at a camp in Virginia. We wanted to start a camp, but I was 25. I had just enough sense to know, I don't know what I'm talking about or I don't know what I'm doing, you know, like, um, but I want to do this. So anyway, it's a pretty cool story. We started and about 10 years in, her parents uh, kind of retired and moved on Lord's just blessed and grown this camp, but it's turned into more than a summer camp. It's like we do conferences. Women, a lot of the women from this church come to our women's conference. The men come to our men's conferences. Um, college students come to our college events. And so we do different things throughout the year. Let me start my timer. Um, but <clears throat> that's important. <laughs> um, but we also planted a church there a few years ago. And, uh, and we've got, we're talking about uh, resources from Snowbird this morning. We have like three or four podcasts. Um, we've got the Snowbird Outfitters main podcast that we post on that, all of our teaching content. And there's a lot. I mean, it's a lot, thousands and thousands of sermons and breakout sessions and seminars, stuff like that. We do everything from parenting to um, marriage and family to uh, tons of student ministry stuff. And a lot of worldview stuff. We talk about worldview. We have we have a our worship pastor at Snowbird right now. We're 24 years old. He's been with us 21 years. He's a PhD student at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary right now, um, and he is he's a renowned apologist. Like he's so he's real smart. Like we make jokes all the time. Like he's really smart and. <clears throat> And I have a high pain tolerance and pretty good at fishing. Like, you know, like everybody's got their strengths, you know. So I do a lot of different things. But we have the main podcast and we have, and then the church that we planted in 2000, 2013 is called Red Oak Church. We just hired our first lead pastor. I'm so excited. Gives me freedom to do more of this type of thing. And that's called Red Oak Church. We have a podcast. And then I, uh, a year and a half ago, I started a podcast that's just me like in front of a microphone rambling sometimes it's just nonsense you know and sometimes it's good i think so you kind of got to pick out you know get the meat and throw the bones out but it's called no sanity required so 
anyway, there's some. But so we're going through at the church, we're going through Daniel. And uh, so y'all had gone through Daniel. So we're like four weeks behind you. So I would listen to Jonathan's sermon every week after I'd prepared mine. Just because I, I, man, I, I'm so opinionated. I'm so emotional. I'm so passionate. And I'm like, I'm going to make sure I'm keeping everything in check with Scripture. You know, it's easy to get outside of the authority of Scripture and just start to, especially if you're a real opinionated person like I am. And it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to just speak opinion. So anyway, I'd. Um, listen to Jonathan. I'm like, okay, I'm on track. I go for a run or jump on my mountain bike or something. And but there's that there's you know there's some passages in the second half of Daniel where you're just scratching your head, going, what in the world is going on right here? You know, like these creatures with like horns and ears. And I'm thinking, I've had drink before. I was a Christian. I saw some stuff like this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and. Um, so I remember I got to the, I forget what chapter it was, but I got to the chapter with one of the visions, and I was like, <laughs> see, what did Jonathan, you know, the commentators couldn't agree. So I listened, I, I, I listened to Jonathan preach that, and I realized, oh, he don't know either. <laughs> well, good, okay, there we go. So um, it was great, but uh, I just appreciate the partnership. Jonathan, I've told y'all he's on our board of directors, and uh I needed a pastor on our board of directors, a bunch of businessmen that are gospel-minded and needed another pastoral voice. And out of the hundreds of pastors that are partnered with Snowbird, that's the guy. I was like, man, I need that guy. Really grateful for, for his investment. Um, so what I want to do this morning, my son said, uh, one of my sons said to me, man, how intimidating is it to preach? You know, it's the scariest thing you can ever imagine. The scariest thing you can ever imagine. You read about like Nadab and Abihu and them cats in the New Testament. They got struck down, and you're like, "Ooh, this is a pretty big deal." And um, so I always say, like, I like to preach in a mild state of panic, um, which is and I'm not even being funny. It is funny, but just a, if, if you're in a mild state of panic, you're probably on good footing because um, there's a there's a fearfulness. And so what I like to, I, I like to use the phrase "unleash the dog," and that comes from. Uh, where I live in the southern Appalachians, bear hunting's real big, and we bear hunt with dogs. And people are like, that seems so scary. And I'm like, not if you unleash the dog, because you ain't fighting the bear. The dog is, you know, like a bunch of dogs, and you just unleash it and let it do its thing. Like, unleash, un, unhinge the Word of God, and let the Word of God do what God intends for it to do. And then it ain't about me, and it ain't about you. We're just responding to what God's doing. So I want to do this morning. So I'm follow last night's message on drifting and talk about uh, what it what it looks like for us to not only avoid drifting, but the best way to avoid drifting is to proactively be doing something else. So, it, what what does the Christian life look like? And this is Second Peter's Peter's. It's basically like his last will and testament to the church. You know, Paul wrote Second Timothy right before he died. At the end of that, he says, "I'm being poured out as a drink offering." Peter says um, in this first chapter, he says, "I'm put, in verse 14. I'm putting off my body soon." I'm getting ready to die. We know what that death looked like. His, his wife died right before him, and he admonished her right before she was executed to be strong and steadfast that she's getting ready to look into the face of Jesus. And so Peter's given us these last words that you think, man, a guy like this is speaking final words, how, how important those words would be. And he's going to do it. I want to I look at this, think, think in pictures, some of us think in words. Some of us think in pictures. Psychologists will tell us that. Some of you, you know, if you think about it, when you're thinking thoughts, some of you are, are seeing words. And some of us see pictures. I'm a picture thinker. Um, I just see things uh, like, like illustratively that way. And so with the words, 
Peter's going to paint a picture that is the Christian life. And the goal is, this is how you finish strong. This is how you run your race. Some of you are 13, 14, 15 years old. You've got a race in front of you that you need to run. And some of us are on the back side of that race, even closing in on the, the final chapters. And so how do we run that well? So the, let me give you the main idea of the, of the text and the message. We must cultivate our experiential knowledge of God cultivate think of stirring and cultivating and and tilling the soil and working an experiential knowledge of god it's not it's not just a collection of facts it's experiential that's why jesus says to that to worship god we have to worship him in spirit and in truth truth is the knowledge the reality spiritually it's the experience of connecting the experience and the knowledge experiential knowledge of god and firmly hold to his promises in a world that tempts us to grasp other things the world's going to tempt you to grasp other things and here's what's happening we talked about the drift last night here's where the drift is happening schindler people who are well-intentioned in the church are getting swept away by a social movement that is informing the gospel And I'm telling y'all, nothing in this world can inform the gospel. The gospel informs everything. For the believer, the gospel gospel tells us how to process everything. It It is what defines us as people. And so this is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians and say, well, you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. And then he'll admonish us to let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus in Philippians. And so we're, we're, in a, in a period in church history where this has happened before, but where there's this progressive shift where a whole generation of Christians is abandoning orthodox Christianity or historic Christianity to embrace a progressive brand of Christianity. This probably, for, for, for us right now, what we're seeing right now in the, in the, in the the secular world around us is people are abandoning cultural Christianity. Like when I was growing up, everybody was like culturally Christian in the Bible Belt. And people that weren't Christians would say they're Christians. And, and, and so people would, you know, take their hat off when somebody prayed. Or people would, um, would, would respect and revere the Word of God to some degree. People would even quote Scripture. But it was, a lot of times it was a cultural thing. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like a true faith. Well, we've moved away from that to where now it's kind of the opposite effect where people are abandoning aspects of historic Christianity, but still trying to redefine some of the things that Scripture's already redefined for us. So here's the problem with progressivism. Y'all have heard this word, right? Progressive. We hear it in relationship to politics. Well, he's a, the, the progressives are driving this party in this direction or whatever. Well, progressivism, the problem with progressivism is that there's no goal. The goal is to progress, okay? So that's why it feels like insanity. You're like, man, I thought we were, gonna, I thought we were fighting for this one cause, and we got here. Nope, we're going to keep going. I thought we were fighting for the rights of, of this particular sexual orientation or this community, but we got here and then realized, nope, what we're going to do now is we're going to create 25 new gender titles. Well, what is that? Well, we, we, progressivism means we have to progress, but, if, but there's never a point where you go, okay, finally, we made it. That's not going to happen with, with the progressive movement. So what's, what's problematic for the church right now is that there's a progressive shift within the church, and now we're just kind of out in no man's land going, where do we go from here? 
I'm not talking about this church, but in general. And so Peter's going to give us some good instruction on how we, how we walk out our faith in a world that is shifting that way. There's a guy named Brian McLaurin that wrote a book called A Generous Orthodoxy. Some of y'all probably read that garbage. And it was like, this was 20, this was late 90s, early, two, early 2000s. This was when you had the rise of what was called the emergent church. Remember that? Emergent church, which rose and kind of crashed. But now it's, it's, it's back in a kind of a repackaged deal. We're seeing the effects of it. And the idea is we push away from, orthodoxy just means like, like straight thinking as as gospel centrality, Christocentric teaching, the word of God is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And like, there's this vein of thinking, the way is narrow and we're walking this. Orthodoxy says, here's the historic teachings of the faith, the virgin birth, the authority of scripture, penal substitutionary atonement, like these historic beliefs that we're willing to die for. Okay. Now, what we're doing is we're saying, well, we don't have to hold to the exclusivity of Jesus. We don't need to hold to... J.I. Packer was talking to a group of pastors in the late 90s, and, and someone asked him, what will be the biggest doctrine of heresy that will confront the church in the next generation? And he said, um, he said an attack on biblical marriage sexuality. Marriage and sexuality. Well, that was prophetic, wasn't it? And, the, and one of the pastors in that meeting said, oh, we're talking about heresy. You know, people think of heresy, they associate that with the, the doctrines of justification by faith and things like that that go all the way back to the Reformation or go all the way back to 4th century Athanasius who was a church father that held the line on biblical orthodoxy and biblical scriptural authority and he's like, no, heresy is anytime you attack something that God has determined to be true and you try to redefine that. And we're right in the middle of that right now. So as Christians, how do we not get caught up in the current of the drift or that shift? So we'll break the passage down this way. Four points. The reality of our faith the response of our faith, the result of our faith, and the resilience of our faith. The reality of our faith, the response of our faith, the result of our faith, the resilience of our faith. Number one, the reality of our faith. Let's take verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter 1. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, so the reality of our faith is that God's divine power has given us certain things. Now, the word power is from the Greek word dunamis, which is the word we get dynamite from. And so he's saying there's this power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 8, 11, lives inside of us. And with that, the power of God in us is, the rea- is, is made real by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer. So the Spirit of God lives and dwells inside of us, so the power of God is living and dwelling inside of us. In verse 4 he says, by this he's granted us his precious and very great promises. So the assertion that Peter makes that God's power grants to us certain things that pertain to life and godliness, that assertion is a reality for the believer based on these two truths in verses three and four. Number one, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is critical for the believer. Y'all, we've been called into personal knowledge who God is. We know him. We know him personally. We know him intimately. The power in us is the Holy Spirit connecting us to the, to the Father. Like we know God. J.L. Packer says, knowing God 
It says in the book, Knowing God. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. Once you've become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So we have the knowledge of God as a reality, as an assertion of the reality that the power of God lives inside of us. And second, this man, this is so important, the promises of God. He's given us... The, the, the idea of the promises in verse 4, listen to how this is worded. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He gives us this in superlative form. Okay? With the perfect tense he has given, Peter is implying not only that God has given these promises to us, but two more things. He has also fulfilled them in Christ Jesus and will continue to fulfill them as a reality in our lives. So the promises of God are not just a promise that was made at some point. It's a promise that is continually being fulfilled in our lives. Let me just work you through some of the promises of God that are given to us as believers. It's from the scripture. I just made a list of these. And I think it's important as we work through these promises. I didn't say this in the first service. Uh, I just thought of this during that time of worship as we're, as we're worshiping together um, in song. It's important that as believers, we don't rely on, we, we don't listen to the lies of the enemy. But I would say it's also important that we don't focus always on the present reality. But that we focus on the promises of God that are not bound only to the present. It's a little bit philosophical. Let me say it again. Like we need to ignore the lies that the enemy's going to tell us. But we also don't need to just focus on the present reality because that's temporary. Paul writes to the Romans, Romans 8, and he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. Like the present reality is a reality, but it's temporal. The promises of God are not temporal. They're permanent. They're ongoing. They're constant. They're, they're continuing. Okay? So we focus on the promises of God. Listen to some of these promises. Through Christ, we overwhelmingly conquer. Romans 8, we're conquerors. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Like these are realities for the believer. We live in a broken and fallen world, but we have the, the power of God living inside of us. It's so important, man. I, I, I've got, uh, a lot of you guys know, I've got a little boy named Mo, named Moses Dorsey Holloway. And I, we adopted him when he was a pretty small fella. And I got five kids and the first four, nothing like me. And that kid is exactly like me. And it is scary. And I think about, my mama used to say, you're going to pay for it, boy. You're going to pay for your raising. You're going to pay for it. And my first kid breathes. My second kid, my second kid got three Ivy League offers. Got, got offered to play football at the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy, and Army West Point. And people will say, where's he get his speed from? I'm like, his speed? How did that thing happen? He's a 4.3 student. I took as many shop classes as I could take and nailed a 2.4. That's a true story. I don't know where, how, this is God's grace. And then along comes kid number five. And I'm like, all right, now we're talking. Now we're talking. After the second time through first grade, and I went in to have a meeting with the principal, the school counselor, the school nurse, the PE teacher, the music teacher, the art teacher, like, and me and my wife were sitting there, and we're at a football game, uh, JV football game last Thursday night. 
He comes walking over there and he's hot tempered. He's just like me. And I've told him, like, when, when the button gets, when the trigger flips, come straight to me. Don't do nothing stupid that could get you incarcerated. Just come to me and we'll work it out. And I look down, he's, he's crying, but it's like that mad cry, you know? And I said, all right, man, what's going on? He said, Drew just told me that white skin is better than brown skin. And, and he is he's real dark. I mean, he's, he's born in, he's East African. He's born in Uganda. So I got this moment right here where I can cultivate a victimhood mentality for him. Or I can do what I did. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Got down on my knee and I said, okay, there's a couple things. First, Drew is an idiot. <laughs> Let's say it together. Drew is an idiot. I was like, you good? Yes, sir. Okay. Second, and second thing, practically, that's not true. Brown skin is much more attractive. Like, but just, let's, just common sense. Okay. But here's the thing that's more important. What is your name? Moses. What's your whole name? Moses Holloway. Who's your daddy? I always wanted to say that. Who's your daddy? You are. You have an identity. Let me tell you something, son. And you're going to have people say bad things to you your whole life. Deal with it. I mean, I mean, my, my, I got a nephew who broke his foot the other day in a football game. And my mama and all my aunts and all my sisters and all the female cousins in my family are blessing his heart till I was sick from, bless his heart. Poor little, poor little Wesley. Okay, first off, he ain't little. And they ain't poor. And there ain't no blessing needs to be done. He made a choice to play a violent game where people's bones consistently get broken. So I said, Wesley, I need to talk to you. You need to block this nonsense out. I love my mama so much. She the best grandma to all 20 of her grandkids. And I said, listen to me. Don't buy that garbage. You need to recognize that there's going to be hard things that happen in life. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it it, it's tough. Like for Christians, I think this is what we need to do. We need to recognize we are not victims. Even if we are pressed down, persecuted, beaten, broken, imprisoned, beheaded, hanged on crosses, hanged on trees, executed before firing squads, we are conquerors. And sometimes we conquer most vividly through persecution. And in the West, it's probably going to be philosophical persecution. And we're seeing it right now. We're, we're playing this out. But that's the promises of God. In Christ, I realize that God really does love me. Jesus died to set me free from sin. Jesus died to give me his righteousness. I'm a member of the household of God. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. Jesus began a good work in me. Jesus will complete it. I've been saved by grace. No one will pluck me from the hand of God. I'm a citizen in the kingdom of Jesus. I'm adopted as a son. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. Jesus has justified me. Jesus will glorify me and God loves me. Amen. That's who you are. Sometimes folks are going to say idiotic things, do hurtful things. Sometimes Satan's going to come at the church in all-out war, and we're going to feel that. But these promises are our reality. Because of these promises, we move to the second thing, which is the response of our faith. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, so what he's doing right here, the response of our faith, he's painting a picture. This is where we paint that picture of the ladder. Imagine the Christian life is a ladder and each rung is represented in this list. And he's making a very important Uh, This is a a very important reality for the believer. He's saying that if we're on this ladder continually climbing, we won't drift. That's real important for us because we're all going to waver at times. We're going to deal with that. We're going to wrestle with things that seem overwhelming. James writes that faith, faith without works is dead. The idea is that true faith sweats and grows and sometimes bleeds and so he says, add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue, knowledge. Add to your knowledge, self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. This grows from a sound mind. Reject worldly ideas. Don't let other people control your joy. Don't live in the prison of bitterness or jealousy or resentment or envy. And then add to that steadfastness. What does steadfastness look like? Be steadfast in the task at hand. Jesus said that no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. Fight for the pursuit of holiness. Fight to continue even when you've fallen. Fight the darkness with the light of the gospel. Fight lies with truth. Fight temptation with the sword of the spirit. Fight bitterness with the heart of forgiveness. Fight wantonness and greed with contentment. Fight envy with satisfaction that comes from knowing and surrendering to Jesus. Fight for those who can't fight for themselves with the courage and determination that the Lord supplies. Fight smart, but fight dirty. The word of God is the sword of the spirit, and it is overwhelming in our fight. Fight, steadfastness. And then he says, add to that godliness. If we're to remain truly steadfast, then we must pursue godliness. I love it. And uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's like, he goes through all this list of stuff, and he's like, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, steadfastness. Take hold of of eternal life and fight the good fight of the faith. He's given these like four categories that a man or a woman of God will be defined by. What they, As a man or woman of God, we are defined by what we flee from, what we fight for, what we take hold of, and what we run after. Like this is, this is important in our fight for godliness, but it's just a rung on the ladder. Godliness, godliness doesn't come from like personal piety. Like if I speak, like I, like I'm in, I remember in an airport in San Francisco, I might've told this story before. I'm in an airport in San Francisco, me and little, uh, me and little, my wife, we went out there. We about every couple of years, like go somewhere, just throw a dart at the map and go, go play. And so we went and rode mountain bike. We went and bike, took our mountain or went up in like Napa Valley, Northern California, rode around in big trees. It's fun. We flew in and out of San Francisco because it's the cheapest. And I want to see that big bridge. We flew in and um, we're flying back out of there, and and I and I carry a gun when I fly places, um, and so you have to go through this whole. I probably shouldn't say it in church on Sunday. I think I feel like I'm on solid footing here. Okay, so <laughs> I could have just said I carry a gun and ended that conversation right there. But but so so you got to go through this whole check it through. There's like a special process for checking it, and, and you got to go. And at the end, you wait, and they got that thing all zip tied the box. And so anyway. We, we're coming back into the airport and I go through the whole process of checking the weapon and because we we're going to be driving and camping for a week or whatever. And I'm in the, I'm in sitting in the, at the gate and this dude comes walking in and you know, you got to pay attention to people. 
because there's crazy people like everywhere. There's crazy people everywhere. And I thought, but this guy, this, you feel kind of comfortable when you're at the gate because they got through all that nonsense with the, where you're, you're in your socked feet and all that, you know. Like he got through that, he's got to be all right, okay. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading and I keep telling this guy, he's looking, he's wanting to say something. And he was, he, he, he had a weird vibe going. He was, he was dressed funny and kind of crazy looking and crazy eyed. He was just, something wasn't right. And, and he says, uh, I said, what's going on, boss? And he starts telling me about last night that he was down on something street and he got in a shootout, but don't worry. He killed everybody with his, with his two and he, some kind of pistol and he did this. And I was like, I think I saw that in a rap song or something. <laughs> like, he's dissing. And so, and he's swearing and cussing and using just obscenities. And I said, he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. He goes like this. Because nobody ever guesses that. Like, ever. So I said that, and he goes like this. He comes out of his seat. Like, I got red. I was like, well, he comes at me, and he goes, for, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Like that. I was like, all right, boss. I ain't your daddy. I know that. All right. And I, and he just keeps kneeling. True story. I went like this. I absolve you. He stood up and I went, I'm just messing with you, man. Like, what are you doing? You know? And, but there's like, there's this, there's this idea of godliness and piety that kind of floats around out there. What this is, is what my buddy Mitch Jolly, who's a pastor in Rome, Georgia, calls in the dirt theology. We're like, pursuit of godliness is grinding it out. It's not because you have a title bestowed on you or because you attend a certain church, or because you walk around like this, speaking of godly things, or you're like, like those cats in the Middle Ages that wore them long brown robes and had a, you know, a haircut where they shaved this spot right here. Like, like, what was that? It was this creation of piety. And we do the same thing. It just looks different. I put whatever my cause is on the bumper sticker on my car. You know, make America great again, or... Black Lives Matter, or whatever the cause is. You pick your side, because everybody's divided. As Christians, we have to be careful that we don't associate secular ideas with the pursuit of godliness. We also have to be careful that we don't associate certain religious activities. I go to church on Sunday. I raise my hand at a certain point in the song. Like, we just have to be really diligent that godliness is a pursuit that's in the dirt we're fighting for it and it's also something that's happening in the shadows when i'm alone that's what's keeping me on the ladder if we're to remain steadfast we have to pursue godliness and then he says brotherly affection and love because a christian is known by his love we're known by our love jesus writes this to the through paul to the ephesians like greater love has no man than what jesus has done he's exampled it for us but then we're going to be known by the way that we love each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Get to verse eight, and he says, these things are important because if they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. The knowledge of the Lord and the power of the Lord in our lives will be effectiveness and fruitfulness. When a believer stops, listen y'all, the drift, we can connect this to what we talked about last night, the drift begins when we lose effectiveness and fruitfulness in our pursuit of Jesus and the outworking of the Spirit in our lives. And he says in verse 9, you become nearsighted. 
You only see the things in front of you and you quit thinking with a heavenly perspective. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For on that ladder, faith, virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, we're working through these things, brotherly love, affection, loving others, pursuing godliness. The scripture is so clear that it's a fight to the finish, but we have to set aside worldly distraction. Work, fight, run, plow, deliver. These are words that describe our lives as Christ followers. The word of God is full of calls to action. Verse 11, he says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the end of the ladder, the gate to heaven will open up and we'll enter in. We'll see Jesus. We'll know him as we are known. That's the goal. We're not running a race with no goal. We're not fighting with no prize in sight. But there, there are days where I imagine, what's it going to be like to see Jesus? To, to look eyeball to eyeball. It literally looks, people say, I would believe if I'd ever seen Jesus. And I, and I get that. I can... But, but because for us we walk by faith but there's going to be a moment stop for a minute let's do an exercise right here it's not going to be awkward I ain't going to make you stand up and do something it's, it's a mental exercise I want you to think of somebody you know that walked with the Lord and now they don't I'm talking about faithfully walked with the Lord could have been a pastor preacher I got a buddy he's a pastor I learned a lot from him he invested in me in my young early days of ministry and he walked away from the Lord. Marriage fragmented, adultery, abandonment of the faith. Think of somebody you know. Every one of us probably knows somebody that was faithful to Jesus, and now they are not. Think about that. Now I want you to imagine your own course. And imagine looking forward, there's a moment where you are going to look into the face of Jesus. And keep that in front of you this week. We're going to face Jesus. Add to our faith virtue. It's a grind, man. You're working, climbing. Christian life is not easy. Plow, work, fight, run, box. Like this, we're climbing this ladder. Virtue, steadfastness, knowledge. And sometimes it's just cycling. And every day I'm on the ladder. But finally at the end, I'm going to step off and I'm going to see Jesus. Which brings me to the final idea and that's the resilience of faith verses 12 through 15 therefore i intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have i think it right as long as i'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since i know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our lord jesus christ made clear to me and i'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things there's things that we need to know. And in verse 12, 13, and 15, he reminds. He says, remind yourselves. Be reminded. I want you to recall these things. He's, and he uses the phrase, stir up. Stir up. Y'all, do y'all have, uh, y'all have pelican snowballs here? You ever been there? Oh, they're wonderful. They're so delicious. They don't have those in Florida, huh? Oh, man, it's like this chain of snow. Or these, uh, they're like, uh, what's snow cones? You know, snow cones, you end up with just all ice because you suck all the juice out of it. And some of you are like, 
Now, I don't know what you're talking about. Snow cones are delicious. You've got to try snow cone, but you need to go Pelican Snowball. There's one, there's, there's a couple on the way. I got the app. I'll tell you the apps I got. Pelican Snowballs, Dairy Queen, <laughs> Cookout. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to find some ice cream. So, so I'm riding down the road the other day with my man, Mo, Mad Dog Mo, me and Mad Dog riding down the road. He said, Daddy, let's go right there to Taco Bell. They got, uh, they got, they got slushes. They call them a slush. I'm like, right, we'll that's not like a great idea. Pull in there, pull up, order one of them dudes. He got the blue one. Get going down the road, I had to pull over and show him like a, you do that and all of a sudden there's, you ain't getting nothing. It's just ice, right? We've all been there. You 70 years old, you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? And you're like, dad, gum it. There ain't no juice left. So let me show you a trick, my man. So take that thing, take your, hold your straw, and do that for a little while. Get it all, and then, and then stir it up like this. And it was like about nine seconds of bliss. And then God, do it again. God, do it again, right? Stir it up. Stir it up. Like as, as believers, we, we have moments where we're go, it's going to get dry, man. You're grinding it out. And, and Peter's saying, stir it up. Stir it up. Like be reminded. Shake this up. The, the real resilience of faith rests on the constant stirring up and reminding of what we know to be true, what we've seen God do. Listen to this solid gold exhortation from David Helms' commentary on Second Peter. What are we to make of this if not that finishing well requires returning to things we have already learned? What a comfort this truth should be in this day and age. Spiritual teachers are bound to seem to always be chasing something new. Like salesmen, they are restless with the apostolic gospel. They claim to be able to give us more. In essence, they would have us think that the gospel that we were saved by is not strong enough to be the gospel by which we should continue standing. It's interesting because in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, past tense, by which you were saved, past tense, in which you are being saved, ongoing work, and in which you will ultimately be saved, future work. It's an ongoing work. Evidently, our day has many things in common with the early church. These early followers of Christ were accosted by new teachings, doctrine cut loose from the moral and ethical standards of the one who Peter preached. Knowing this, Peter decides to close out his life as a preacher by way of reminder. We should mark this insight well. We can never outgrow the good news that Jesus came to make substitution for sin and that this teaching received by faith makes demands upon us to live upright, changed, and holy lives. So remember that according to Peter, nothing new will have the power to establish us in the faith. The gospel's unchanging. Peter got this. Think about Peter's life. Think about just just connect the dots of the few experiences that you know of Peter. Let me help you. Let's start with the walking on water incident of 32 AD. Have you heard of this? Peter is a professional fisherman who never learned how to tread water, float on his back, or doggy paddle, and thought it would be a good idea to get out of the boat. Remember this? And it's like, oh, and people always talk about, he took his eyes off Jesus. I'm like, no, no, no. He had a bigger problem. He never learned how to swim and went into a vocation that required you to be in a boat. 
That's the kind of guy Peter was. Oh, this seems like a great idea. I don't like water. I'm going to be a fisherman. Like, what? like they, there's this moment. There's this moment where they come to get Jesus, and Peter's like, "Oh heck no, I'm hitting somebody with a sword." He apparently could swing a sword and fight with that thing about as good as he could swim. But it's just this like this crazy moments. There's the moment at the transfiguration where he behold he writes of it. In, in, in the next, in verses 16 through 18, he writes of beholding the glory of Jesus. Remember that story, what he does afterwards? Uh, we should build a house here and never leave. It's like, he, it's like he didn't know what to say, but he felt like he should say something. Some of you are like that. I feel like I should say something right now. I can't stand the silence, you know. Peter, on the night that Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, and he's down there and he's watching Peter's like, feet wash your feet jesus like at one point you know jesus called him satan that's a pretty big deal (laughs) give me your name tag takes a sharpie you know s-a-t-a-n hello my name is satan you're like (laughs) peter's like you can't wash my feet and jesus is like if i don't wash your feet you have no part in me peter's like wash all of me you know like Dude, calm down. Just roll with Jesus' plan. Like, like it's okay to put your robe back on. You know, like this is indecent. He's washing your feet. It's cultural. It's an it's it's analogous. But there's that moment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it right here. There's that moment where Peter says, I will die with you, Jesus. Jesus is like, no, you won't. Not tonight. You will later. In fact, there'll be a point where they lead you around like this. And execute you. But tonight, nope, nope, sorry. What you're going to do is you're going to deny me and you're going to do it three times before the rooster starts crowing. Which at my house happens somewhere around 6.15 in the morning. Like clockwork. He's got a, he's, he's like a designated time from now till then and you're going to do this three times. And he does it. And, and, and this thing ends, it culminates, there's this crescendo of obscenities where Peter is swearing with F words and S words and GD and everything, the, the vulgarity that you can, like, engage your imagination for a minute. And he's swearing disassociation to Jesus, to middle school girls. And they make eye contact. What did he feel like in that moment? You should know because you've been there. I know because I've been there. That moment where I know what I know what I know and I turn my back or I walk away or I slip or I forget or I step off the ladder. And Jesus looks at him with mercy in his eyes and that's why Peter would write in his first letter, according to his great mercy, he has caused me to be born again by a living resurrection. He knew the pinnacle, the, the pinnacle of failure. Therefore, he knew the power of resurrection. And he says to us, just don't get off the ladder and you'll finish well. I'm laying my life down now. I'm going to finish well. You can do the same. Just don't forget. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you'll win the prize. Let's pray.